This is The Guardian. Hi, Gabrielle Jackson here. Today we're going to play you something a little different. As you may know, this week Guardian Australia turns 10 and we've made something special for you to help us celebrate. It's hosted by our opinion editor, Bridie Jabour, who was one of the first people hired when we launched Guardian Australia back in 2013. It's a really lovely look inside at how we got where we are, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Okay, so 2012, Julia Gillard was Prime Minister. I absolutely believe that united we can win the next election. I was the chief political correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald. I am very determined that we do so. There were these concerns. I started uh, thinking about leaving Fairfax in 2012, which was an absolute horror year in Australian journalism. It actually still makes me stressed to think about it. It was the time when Gina Reinhart was trying to take control of Fairfax. Australia's wealthiest woman buys a significant portion of Fairfax media. If she gets a, a seat on the board of that company, we'll stir things up here in the media sense. That raised the prospect that News Corp would have, you know, 60 or 70 percent of Australian print media by circulation and Gina Reinhart might control the rest. We understand that she is asking for the personal right to be able to intervene directly in editorial matters on these papers. The sort of internet bus had well and truly hit all the big media employers. It seemed like every week there were more people going. 1,900 jobs would be slashed by Fairfax management. And so I had been thinking about that and talking about it with my Fairfax colleague, Catherine Murphy. Basically, I thought, well, <laughs> if, if journalism's going out backwards, then if it's to be death, then I want to die honourably. Or I really want to find a place where I can practice the kind of journalism that's important to me. And <laughs> Lenore and I basically had a version of this conversation in the corridor in the press gallery. I think she and I mentally were in a very similar place. And I had this probably mad, in retrospect, definitely mad, actually, idea of setting up something like an Australian version of Politico. And I happened to mention that in passing to Malcolm Turnbull, who was a shadow communications spokesman at the time. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's wonderful. And he mentioned that The Guardian might be coming to Australia. So I was immediately intrigued, but it was a long way from a sure thing at the time. And I kind of filed it away in my mind as interesting idea, wonder if that will ever happen and got on with things. I'm Bridie Jabour. I'm the opinion editor at Guardian Australia, where I started as a reporter in 2013. It is wild to think that that was... 10 years ago now, and we are going to talk to many of the key people who made it happen. Hold up. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So do you remember when you first had just the flicker of an idea that maybe The Guardian could work in Australia? I do. I remembered it very vividly. It was a Sunday morning. I was sitting in my cottage in Gloucestershire and the phone rang. Alan Rusbridger was editor-in-chief of The Guardian in 2012. And it was Malcolm Turnbull. I'll just read you what I had in my diaries. Who I knew a bit. So 19th of June 2012, Malcolm Turnbull today is a former Prime Minister of Australia, among many things. But in 2012 and 2013, he was the Shadow Minister for Communications. And he explained the media scene and what had just happened. Had an interesting chat with Alan Rushbridge, with whom I'm discussing very confidentially the idea of establishing an Australian edition of The Guardian. I was very anxious that Gina Reinhart was going to buy the Sydney Morning Herald, or Fairfax as it was, and that you would then have both the Murdoch media interests and then Fairfax in that right-wing climate denial sort of camp. So the conversation then turned to Malcolm saying to me, why doesn't The Guardian come to Australia? Please come to Australia. And at that point, how likely did you think that something like that could eventuate? It it seemed to me inconceivable. The Guardian is not Rich, we we were already overextended. And I think Malcolm must have anticipated I was going to say that. He said, well, what about if we had a philanthropist who would regard this as a philanthropic gesture? He then suggested the name Graham Wood, which meant nothing to me. And he sketched Graham to me and said, look, here was somebody who was already dabbling in alternative media. I was struggling to oppose the drift to the right of media in Australia. Graham Wood is a philanthropist. He's also an environmental campaigner. And the reason he's able to be those things is he founded the website whatif.com.au. And the people of Australia needed another voice to say, no, this right-wing trend is not mainstream. So I went to see Graham and I said, look, you know, you want to put some money behind progressive journalism in Australia. How about you support The Guardian? And he said, if you want to get serious, go talk to The Guardian. He was a passionate environmentalist uh, and he saw the importance of a plural media environment. Alan sent me some numbers on what it might involve, spoke to Graham, who was very interested. And did you see any risks in this investment? Oh, yeah, well, heaps, but whatever. There's risks in every investment. I was prepared to lose that amount of money if the whole deal didn't come off. 
And your money, your investment, it not only got paid back, but it got paid back ahead of deadline, didn't it? Oh, yeah, that was cool. That was uh, that was um, encouraging, I have to say. Yeah. The money, the money wasn't the driver for me. The money was simply to get a media organisation in Australia to counter the nonsense that was going on in politics and the media generally. There is no Gardening Australia without Graham's funding, but also he was just this amazing funder who gave us the money and then cleared off. And he was just a dream investor and we were so lucky with Graham. Catherine Viner, you were the launch editor of Guardian Australia and now you're global editor-in-chief. Do you remember where you were when you first heard about the potential of the Guardian launching in Australia? It was over breakfast uh, with the then editor, Alan Rusbridger, in uh, Edinburgh. We were there for the, the media festival. I sensed that she was slightly restless. You know, I'd been deputy editor for several years and um, I didn't really know what I was going to do next. And she was looking for a new challenge. He, he, out of the blue, absolutely out of nowhere, said, well, what about Australia? Now, you know, there had been no rumours about Australia. No one had ever mentioned The Guardian launching in Australia. And he said, well, I think there's a big opportunity in Australia. I think you'd be a really good person to run it. And I think she took a tiny bit of persuading, just because it's a very long way away and it, it came completely out of the blue. And I remember going out, walking into the, uh, the Edinburgh August sunshine and thinking... Well, that could be absolutely amazing. And it just happened to be the perfect job for her at that time. You talked to a lot of senior journalists in Australia, didn't you? So how did you decide that Lenore and Catherine Murphy were the two that you wanted? Yeah, so I met for coffee with a lot of really senior Australian political journalists, lots of excellent reporters, but I think they really didn't see this point that there was something missing apart from Lenore and Catherine. I felt they really understood that political reporting was changing. You know, it wasn't all about the horse race, who's up, who's down, but also that there was something deeper about policy, about how politics affects people's lives. And, and how you could do that in a digital way with really good live blogging and really deep analysis, which is what they brought. Lenore and I then met up at the end of those conversations. She said to me, you know, are we doing this? And I said, uh, yep, we are absolutely doing this. So terrified, I think, the two of us. Uh, We sat down on the lawn at the National Gallery of Australia like a couple of primary school kids with our sandwiches and uh, we both composed an email to our respective editors. Uh, We counted down, five, four, three, two, one, and hit send and bang, it was done. They were big hires, they were expensive hires and I remember... (laughs) I don't think I've ever told them this. I remember the night um, we sealed the deal um, and I remember laying awake all night saying, you know, have I done the right thing? It's so much money. You you know, have I ruined their careers? Have I ruined my career? (laughs) Um, uh, And certainly no regrets about hiring those two, I must say. 
And I remember when I eventually did come to resign from Fairfax, the then chief executive, Greg Highwood, said to me that The Guardian might be a recognised brand in a few inner city suburbs of London, but there would only ever be two news brands that would ever have any clout in Australia, and that was News Corp and Fairfax. So nobody really thought things would change, and the idea that maybe we could prove them wrong was also pretty enticing. Did you think maybe he could be right? It it was, without a doubt, it was an enormous leap into the unknown and it was a huge risk. So, yeah, I guess I was a little bit worried that he might be right, but I wanted to prove him wrong. about us launching and all the excitement and the thrill and the challenges and then it's going to throw forward a bit but you mostly just have to worry about the exciting part and how our exciting time together. Do you know what? It was quite exciting. I was thinking about it. I caught the train in and wrote some notes because I was just like, it's hard to believe some of the stuff that happened and when it happened. Christian Bennett was the head of video and the only person in the entire department at the launch of Guardian Australia. I think I was like quite naive maybe about what I was being, about how big it was, what I was being part of, because I was only 25. We were, we were all so young. How old were you? Not, not that young, unfortunately. I was like 32, <laughs> something like that. But like, yeah, still young enough to go halfway across the world to set something up without actually any sense of what it was or, or why I was doing it, which seems slightly insane now. Do you remember when you first heard about Guardian launching in Australia? So an email went round to all the staff in London, which said, we're thinking of launching in Australia. You know, do you want to apply and we'll do some interviews? And it was an email from Kath. We brought colleagues who were really digitally focused, internationally minded, and really understood The Guardian and then put them together with um, uh, people we hired who were Australian, who we felt really understood uh, what The Guardian should be. I think she knew exactly what she was doing because she sent the email on the coldest day of the year in England. So I remember walking to work and I was slipping on ice and I was really pissed off about being in England in winter. And then Christian came to see me. Kath still tells the story that I pitched very hard. Christian said, you've got to take me. You only need me. I can shoot, I can edit, I will sleep on floors, I will travel on cheap airlines, I'll cost you barely anything, you have to take me. don't remember that personally, but it's probably true. And actually having, of course, having multimedia right from the beginning, it was a big game changer. It was really important for us. Christian now runs multimedia for The Guardian worldwide. What was it like when you started out in those early days? No one wanted to help us. No one would give us a room in the press gallery, for example. So in the end, we had to, the team had to share, I think it was with Channel 10. Yeah, so we were sitting at a single desk in the Channel 10 tech office with a very nice fellow called Brian Burns, who did a lot of soldering. But it was kind of like it was Brian's shed and we kind of invaded it. Honestly, it's sort of like Brian was just our absolute saviour in those opening months. I think Brian sadly passed away recently, but he was a long-time gallery person and a very nice person to share our first very strange office with. And I think we should also say thanks to Hugh Remington, who found us that tiny little desk. Lee Glendinning, you were the first ever news editor of Guardian Australia and the only one at the time. Now we have about seven. (laughs) 
it was so exciting and we didn't know if it was going to succeed and we were all in it together and all of us like work was our life yeah my memories from those first few sort of weeks and months into the first kind of year at Guardian Australia we didn't have many people it was such a small staff but the people we had it was such a fantastic combination of personalities and skill sets so the powerhouse of Lenore Taylor and Catherine Murphy in Canberra combined with particular specialists in certain topic areas. And then, of course, we had this amazing group of young reporters who brought so much energy and willingness to the day-to-day kind of how we were going to jump on particular things because, of course, there wasn't a lot we could do. We had to make such clear decisions about what we could do with the resources that we had. And what do you remember about the very first office? (laughs) The very first office was the one in Wynyard. And it was so rickety and it didn't really have proper internet. And it was like a small office with four seats in it that had paper thin walls, which, Bridie, I actually remember overhearing your job <laughs> interview. <laughs> that, well, I'm not known for my quiet, dulcet tones, I guess. <laughs> Bridie, the listeners might want to know, wrote me this absolutely hilarious letter. I was 24 years old, living in Brisbane. I'd just finished my cadetship in uni and had my first job after that, which was at the Brisbane Times. And I found Kath Viner's email and emailed her directly, begging her for a job. There's no one like me in Australia. I'm half Lebanese, half Irish, brackets, Derry. I understand The Guardian in my bones. I'm a brilliant reporter, but also, you know, I was born for Guardian Australia. I remember writing, I will make Vegemite toast for you if that's the job you have for me. I am so desperate to be part of this. I remember thinking either this woman is completely crazy and um, completely unhirable by anyone or she could be rather brilliant. I do wish that more people had read emails saying to hire them and they'll make me toast. Did it feel precarious to you at the beginning? Yes. Yes, absolutely it did. It was so small. The workload was so incredibly great to try to create a website that looked like we were covering most things and we put a lot of pressure on ourselves because we'd staked everything on this thing succeeding. Yeah, we had absolutely no certainty and so many other things didn't work around that time. So many other startups. So many and also ones that did work at the time and have since failed. Yeah as well. Yeah. So it's a real rarity to get to this level of sort of success and audience and influence and impact when you think of what that landscape looked like and how many of those startup players are still around. Did you feel like there were many people who really did not want us to succeed? I think a lot of our colleagues were quite positive and willing us to succeed. I mean, It's another place to employ journalists in Australia. Um, There were some politicians certainly who were a bit uh, concerned, I suppose, at a progressive voice coming into the market. I know there was a period where the Abbott government really tried to sort of starve us out of the press gallery, stop sending us any notifications of press conferences or any press releases. It didn't last long, but I guess that meant they weren't that happy. What was the lead up to launch like? Um, It was nerve-wracking. I was incredibly nervous about how it would go. We were very intent upon showing that we were going to be serious about the news. 
Yeah. So one of the exciting things about when we launched was, you know, we were digital. We weren't tied to print. And so we could launch with brilliant digital projects. I think one of the ones that we launched with was Firestorm, which was this, you know, it touched on all the big key themes that we'd be working out later, but it was this kind of beautiful, scrolly interactive, which told the story of a family's escape from a wildfire in Tasmania. Indescribable towers of flame. It was as if someone had dropped a, a one kiloton bomb in the middle of the township. And the other main thing that we launched with was uh, the interview with Julia Gillard. Prime Minister, thanks very much for talking with Guardian Australia. I did a big interview with Julia Gillard for launch, which made a lot of news, but also had a little spin-off story where she revealed that she was a big Game of Thrones fan. Is that because it's even more bizarre than Australian politics? <laughs> and then after that, I remember for a while she was actually tweeting in Dothraki, the Game of Thrones fictional language. Oh, I'm barracking for the Khaleesi, the, oh. mother, the mother of dragons. So that was kind of kind of fun. Khaleesi's not a name you like to be known by in the office? Uh, well, I don't have uh, any pet dragons. And it felt, it felt really exciting in digital that, you know, two of the key things we launched with, one was a video interview and one was a sort of experimental interactive project, right? And I think that really laid a marker for what we were going to do in the future. From the beginning, I thought we're going to be so small, we can't do everything, obviously. So we need to focus on some key areas. I, I thought there was a gap in political coverage, a sort of digital gap. I thought there was a gap in coverage of asylum, of the environment and Indigenous affairs. I felt those were the spaces where the Guardian could make most of an impact. And we were absolute street fighters for for every reader and for every story. Next, one of Guardian Australia's first big scoops and Catherine Viner's plan to make sure Guardian Australia's voice stood out from the rest. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Catherine Viner, what's one of the stories that you're most proud of from your time as editor of Guardian Australia? So just in the first few months, we made our impact in lots of different ways, I think. So, but probably the biggest in the first few uh, months was our Snowden story. So we were part of The Guardian's global uh, series of Snowden exclusives. So you'll have seen revelations of an hour or so ago on The Guardian website, uh, further material that's been disclosed by NSA uh, subcontractor and whistleblower Edward Snowden. The Snowden documents revealed that Australian spy services had been listening in on the phones of the Indonesian president, Yudhiono, and his wife and senior colleagues. That caused a major ruckus. 
Tony Abbott is facing the toughest test of his short prime ministerial tenure. Indonesia's president has asked him for a please explain. As our Australian listeners will know, Australia's relationship with Indonesia is incredibly important and it caused an absolute furore. Front foot it. Come out and explain to Australian citizens what's going on. We shared it with the ABC, which at the time felt slightly counterintuitive, but we really had no capacity to follow the fallout in Indonesia, so we needed to be able to collaborate with the ABC on that. I think, in retrospect, it was the right decision. It infuriated the Abbott government even more, and they really attacked the ABC for it, but it was a very consequential story. There was a real frenzy around it. It was a big scoop. It really put us on the map. You ended up with quite a variety of people from different parts of Australia, different class backgrounds. How were you thinking about recruitment for that to happen? You're looking for people who have a different lens and the ability to see news stories in a slightly different way or to see issues in a slightly different way. Or why aren't we covering this? Why wouldn't we do a big story on this? And I think we wanted people with similar energy um, who could really break through and were willing to take a risk and try something new from established media jobs, not knowing if it was going to work or not. We wanted to be more diverse. We wanted to be, I don't know, just just different. It's it's set up or ready to go? Thank well, great. it is going. And it's going? Great. Okay, cool. So obviously, uh, being 2012, 2013, Twitter was really great then. <laughs> and one of the accounts I really love was this account, Indigenous X, which Luke Pearson ran. I was living in Sydney at the time. Uh, I moved down to Sydney not long after starting on Twitter, but a little bit before Indigenous X kicked off. He had this idea that it was hosted by different people all the time. And through that, I got to learn so much about Indigenous Australia. I mean, it's hard to believe that you could learn so much from Twitter, but I really did. And so I thought it was such a kind of innovative thing to do. And he obviously had lots of brilliant contacts, so I wanted to meet Luke. Uh, and we'd been running for less than 12 months, I think, when I got a, a call. So, yeah, we met for a coffee and I suggested we could do a partnership together. I think if you read an opinion piece prior to, you know, this partnership prior to the rise of Indigenous social commentary, uh, you know, Ernie Dingo was the one black fella allowed on TV and, and Noel Pearson was the one black fella allowed to write for mainstream media. Um, and that was that was it. It is wild to look at it from a 2023 perspective. Yeah, to me it was really exciting that it was people just sitting down at the table going like, we want to do something, we want to do it better than what is currently being done. And looking around the landscape, they saw Indigenous X and what we were doing at the time. And um, it it was very gratifying in that sense, I guess, because we were still new, we were still excluded from a lot of that sort of media space at that time. I, I just remember it being really... Uh, heartening, really gratifying and really exciting about what could come out of it. <laughs> it's, it's hard to explain it in any other way, but of like, okay, I, I've found my people in the, the non-Indigenous media landscape in a way that I didn't think would be possible. Yeah, I, I've never done the maths to double check it, but I think it's very safe to say that the moment that partnership launched, The Guardian became the largest mainstream publisher of Indigenous opinion instantly. At the time, I didn't have a job. I had finished university the year before. I had had other jobs in journalism, but nothing that really stuck. In fact, I'd lost the previous job a few days before that. Michael Safi was hired as a reporter in the first year of Guardian Australia. 
And now he's a host of one of the UK's biggest daily news podcasts, The Guardian's Today in Focus. I was sitting around at my share house in Sydney and I got a text message and it said, hi, Michael, it's Kath Viner. Do you want to meet for a coffee tomorrow? And my first reaction was, okay, but who is it really? Like I thought it was a friend (laughs) just like taking the piss. And it was actually Kath and we had a coffee the next day and I started at The Guardian the following Monday. And it was like the beginning of like the beginning of a dream that I have not woken up from in the last nine years. Yeah, that was how it started. I didn't just want to recreate something from Fairfax. Obviously, there'd be lots of, we got Fairfax as was. We, you know, David Marr joined us, which was a big coup as well. I haven't mentioned that, actually. That's quite a good story, you know. Okay, (laughs) let's go through it step by step. (laughs) So I was, I met um, Annabelle Crabb and I went round to her house for a coffee and she obviously didn't want to join, but we were just talking about other journalists. And I said, oh, I love David Marr. And she said, oh, he's just, um, he's just left Fairfax. And I said, oh, I didn't know that. And she goes, yeah, he just lives around the corner. Should we go and see him? So we went around the corner spontaneously. Good knock, you know, not too long, not too short. <laughs> Expects to be let in. There's Annabelle, smiling as always through those glasses, and this terribly English woman standing with her, um, who didn't seem to be the slightest bit phased about coming into this gloomy house. And um, so. And I said, oh, I love your work, David. And I I reeled off all the things I'd read of his. (laughs) God, I was deft. Anyway, within about 10 minutes, I'm thinking, geez, I'd like to work for that woman. I really want to work for this woman. So they had afternoon tea here and disappeared. And um, I told my partner a couple of, Ladies had come for afternoon tea. And um, and then the feelers came out a few days later. Would I possibly be interested? And I said, I don't suppose you'd like to write for The Guardian. He goes, yeah, why not? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the casual hiring of an absolute giant of Australian journalism. <laughs> to me, she seemed to renew the possibilities of journalism in this country. She wasn't scared. In that conversation, I could hear her saying, go all out. And that was, I found really new, renewing, terrific. So the thing about Kath was that she really loved Australia. I mean, she didn't just say it. It was a, you can tell when she comes here that she really viscerally loves Australia. She loves swimming in the ocean. She loves catching the bus. She read everything. She watched all the television programs and every movie. I mean, she even learnt the words to K-San, for goodness sake. Personally, I really, really connected with Australia. For me, coming from Britain that I had felt so class-bound and so much of an outsider. And when I came to Australia, I felt so accepted and that no-one was sort of judging me for where I came from somehow. It's so different on that front, I think, for Britain. What did you think when you first heard Catherine Viner was leaving Guardian Australia? Well, obviously, it was an upheaval, right? Um, It had been almost two years since Kath had arrived in Australia, but it felt like we were really just getting going. Um, But then she was replaced by a very senior editor from London, Emily Wilson, who arrived with enormous energy and enthusiasm, and she did a really terrific job and was the editor for the next two years. 
What was it like working for Emily Wilson? I owe Emily like a huge amount. Like she really took my aspirations as a journalist seriously and like really helped me to figure out how to get there. And like, I remember one Friday afternoon, I was reporting from the Melbourne office and thinking about the weekend. And I got a call from Emily and she said, what are you doing this weekend? And I started saying, oh yeah, I might go and see this movie and I'm going to go for a walk tomorrow. And she goes, enough. There's a plane booked for you in two hours. Uh, you're going to the Cocos Islands because they're landing an asylum seeker boat there. <gasps> yeah, and so I had to rush home and pack. And the last thing she said to me was, do you have a sleeping bag? Go and buy one. You might have to sleep under a tree. And she started laughing. That kind of cackle that, that you oh remember. Oh, my God, that's so Emily. <laughs> so Emily, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so I did. I went and bought a sleeping bag. Giving and... you this huge assignment, but just being so fun, thinking it's funny at the same time as well that yeah, you sleep exactly. on the ground. So she sent me home. I packed. And yeah, within about 36 hours, I was in this like tiny island in the Indian Ocean. I remember I spoke to someone who told me that this boat was landing at about 5 a.m. on the island. And so I borrowed someone's kid's bike and I was like riding on a tropical island in the Indian Ocean, middle of the night. And sure enough, this ship pulls into the pier at some point. And so I was standing within a couple of metres of these... Australian border officials as they were unloading the gear of of people trying to get to Australia, asylum seekers. Like they had clear plastic bags and I could see in them jumpers and beanies and sweaters and kids' toys and they were just throwing them onto a pier. And then those pictures and the videos I took ended up being broadcast obviously in The Guardian but then on across the media. And like to me that was Guardian Australia such an exciting thing to be a part of because it felt like... It got the internet, it got digital journalism in a way that at that time nobody in Australia did. So after our second editor-in-chief, the fantastic Emily Wilson, left, you put yourself forward for the role. When did you first start entertaining that idea? It never crossed my mind. It had never been an ambition. My ambition above all other things was that this venture would succeed and would become an influential and impactful voice in Australia. But it was pretty clear to me that for the venture to succeed, we really needed to have an Australian editor at some point and probably at this point, and that it would need to be somebody who was both senior in Australia, but also understood how The Guardian worked. And that really quite narrowed the field down. So I put my hand up. Where were you when you found out that you were going to become the editor of Guardian Australia? I was standing outside Parliament House waiting for a lift and it was sunset and there were these gang-gang parrots hanging in the tree just behind me eating little red berries really noisily. Kath called and offered me the job and I was kind of momentarily overwhelmed because we were still so small and the task was so big. And yes, that is why I go for the gang-gang in Bird of the Year. Do you remember finding out that Lenore Taylor was going to be the third editor of Guardian Australia and the first Australian editor of Guardian Australia. Yeah, I do. I, I was on my way to India. I knew I was going to India to start my job there. To me, it was a real, like, coming-of-age moment for Guardian Australia. And I think up till then, there was still some kind of chatter in media circles that it sort of it wasn't taking Australia seriously. That was the chatter. And I think with the announcement of Lenore, with the announcement of an Australian editor of that stature, it became clear that 
we meant business, that we were there to stake our claim to the Australian media landscape. What are some of the biggest moments for Guardian Australia in the past 10 years? Oh, God, Brady, so many, so many. We focused a lot on offshore detention. We published the Nauru files in 2016. Paul Farrell is the Sydney-based Guardian journalist the documents were leaked. The detention centre that we are living in in Nauru is like a prison. These files are an uncompromising illustration of the more than two years of misery for those held on the island. The Nauru files had an extraordinary revelatory impact across Australia. Ben Doherty is a reporter with Guardian Australia and one of the people who worked on the Nauru files. Laid bare for the very first time was the reality of what was happening inside this centre and it was there for all to see. And there was enormous reaction. There were Senate inquiries, there were government reports, there were investigations within Home Affairs. Labor has initiated a Senate inquiry about serious allegations of abuse, self-harm and and neglect of asylum seekers in these places. I think the Nauru files, not alone, but was a significant part in shifting that that mood, in moving Australia's conversation and allowing the Australian people to honestly and openly interrogate the policies we were enacting and deciding that we could do better. We did a lot of really good environment reporting over the years. We've got a really strong environment team, three dedicated environment reporters led by Adam Morton. Globally, the impact that Australia will have on the climate is the major gas developments. All the evidence tells us that we shouldn't be opening new fields. And I think that has been distinctive because we always have had complete clarity about global heating and about the policies required for us to do our part in tackling global heating as an existential threat, not as a political parlour game. This should be treated as fairly radical and extraordinary things to be proposing to do without an evidence that this is a sensible path, either from an economic point of view, from a cost for consumers point of view, and obviously from a climate point of view. We've done really great medical reporting. Our medical editor, Melissa Davies, broken global scoops. And I really do remember this amazing investigation she did about a quite horrific malpractice by an obstetrician and gynaecologist called Emile Gayed. In the middle of 2018, I received a phone call from a woman who wanted to report a doctor to me that had harmed someone she knew by performing unnecessary medical procedures on her. When I heard this, I immediately went to the Healthcare Complaints Commission and requested any reports or documents they had on this particular doctor. And then they sent me a document that made my jaw drop. These patients say Dr. Emile Gayed botched procedures and sometimes performed unnecessary surgery on them. Very quickly, my editor said, you need to go to Tari and speak to these women, and that's what I did. While he's now been banned, it's little comfort for the women whose bodies he damaged. The health minister got involved. An inquiry was ordered into this doctor's work across numerous health districts. It revealed a health system failure where different departments didn't talk to each other and there was a culture of protecting very, very senior doctors as well. We've done brilliant Indigenous reporting. Indigenous editor Lorena Allam leads that team. So what makes The Guardian's Indigenous Affairs coverage unique is that we operate on a philanthropic model. Philanthropic funding allows us to step out of the daily news cycle and really deeply investigate issues that we think are important to the national conversation. 
So we did the deaths inside database, which actually kind of did the bureaucracy's work for them in collating and enumerating how many deaths in custody there had been since the Royal Commission. It prompted a lot of assessments by various jurisdictions about how they tracked deaths in custody. It really fueled the Black Lives Matter movement in Australia at the time. There were placards at rallies that were quoting our numbers, uh, counting our numbers of Aboriginal people who died in custody. And it really struck a chord at that time. We really highlighted a problem that had not gone away and in fact had gotten worse over time because of systemic neglect. And we also uh, brought to life an amazing database and map of the frontier massacres that was produced by the University of Newcastle in a project called The Killing Times. What we were able to show was that there was this systemic eradication of Aboriginal people. These weren't isolated incidents. They were designed to get people out of the way so that the colony could be expanded. Um, We wanted to bring to life that struggle that people have even now coming to terms with that history as personally and then as a community and as a nation. Those two pieces of work have been really consequential and have sort of enduring impact. We're changing the way people, Australians, understand their history. All rise. Welcome to this initial hearing of the RoboDebt Royal Commission. RoboDebt was a budget savings measure hatched by the coalition government to claw back almost $2 billion from welfare recipients. We broke the RoboDebt story. RoboDebt was a government program that accused hundreds of thousands of people of being overpaid Centrelink benefits uh, using an automated system. The RoboDebt Royal Commission's provided Australians who were the victims of RoboDebt with a chance to tell their stories. These were stories which weren't heard four and a half years while the unlawful scheme was being run. And I was really kind of pleased that the Royal Commissioner noted our coverage as one of a few honourable exceptions of media organisations who sort of provided committed coverage when, you know, everyone else was at best patchy. The Commission's media officer has drawn my attention to some of the Twitter commentary and I've been struck by how committed and serious some of the people tweeting are. I'm thinking of people like Mr Enrique Gomez, I may have mangled his name. Luke Enriquez Gomes is Guardian Australia's Social Affairs and Inequality Editor. There were questions about the legality of robo-debt and from a media perspective, uh, my colleagues Chris Norse and Paul Karp really laid those bare in a story they published in 2018. And then we followed it year in, year out, all the way through the Royal Commission because it was such an obvious injustice. People accused of owing money, thousands of dollars by the government, which they didn't owe, Really, that's a story about, you know, an awful situation that hundreds of thousands of people found themselves in. We wrote a lot over the years about welfare and social policy. Where The Guardian reported that the richest 1% of Australians will get as much benefit from the Stage 3 tax cuts as the poorest 65% combined. In a kind of different way, with a different lens, in that we've always tried to listen to people who live on government payments and hear from them rather than write about them. So trying to sort of flip that prevailing kind of narrative in the media about dull budgets and welfare cheats. I mean, if you don't know where your next meal's coming from, you're hardly going to care about who's Prime Minister. Your worry is, what am I going to eat? You know, writing for The Guardian has been one of the greatest things I've ever done. I felt as if I was contributing to the world. You know, I felt as if my perspective and my viewpoint 
may actually change some minds. The Guardian has been a key platform for helping to change in terms of consistently, in a very respectful way, providing a platform for people to speak to their own experiences rather than through the um, mediated voice of others, including ACOS itself. Cassandra Goldie is CEO of ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Service. I think that it's been a very reliable and highly respected source of journalism consistently covering the issues that we consider to be most serious and important and relevant to people's lives. A lot of great reporting about police behaviour and justice, especially from our Queensland team. The recordings are graphic. I'll be skull dragging him into the car. And that is my definition of policing. Yeah. Leaked to Guardian Australia by a whistleblower, the muffled audio captures Queensland police and watch house officers making racist comments while at work in a Brisbane watch house. I mean, it's a long list. We've done a lot of good things and we have fun. The moment has arrived, the moment we've all been waiting for. It is time to find out. The biennial bird of the year poll is super fun. And go gang gangs. What do you think the impact of Guardian Australia has been over the past 10 years? I think it is the single most valuable addition to journalism and public discourse in Australia in the last 20 years, for sure. For all of my professional life, there were basically two players in in the print media in Australia. And I don't think that a market that is that concentrated is good for democracy or good for public conversation. So I think one of the big impacts of The Guardian is simply being another voice in a very concentrated media market. And that might sound like a small thing, but in the Australian context, it was actually a big thing because by expanding the media voices, it made it possible to do things differently. Uh, The whole kind of guardian ethos of respecting the reader and putting the reader at the centre of the journalism experience is just so fundamental to honest journalism. And the guardian sort of holds that mantra at the centre of of our operations. Well, I think it's a big, courageous, authoritative player in the media landscape. This is Mark Scott. He was the managing director of the ABC when The Guardian was starting out. And in a funny sort of way, even The Guardian's success online here opened the door for things like if you have intelligent content targeting a specific market that's well-edited and well-curated, you can sustain that well and effectively in this marketplace too. And so I think now, even though we're awash with content and social media is increasingly murky and kind of complex and difficult to navigate, if in fact you're one of those people, and I think I'm doing this more now too, where you you think, actually, I don't want to graze everything. I want sources that I can trust and rely on and go to who will be very dependable and help inform me and give me insight in navigating this complex world, then I think The Guardian has now really established itself strongly in that that place now. And so I think the influence of, amongst others, The Guardian over this 10 years has been one of those really key journalistic influences that has helped to keep people connecting and listening to each other as we grapple with these big debates. 
What do you see Guardian Australia doing in the next 10 years? I want us to get bigger. I want us to have more influence and make more of a difference and publish more scoops and find new readers and more diverse readers. I want to employ more staff and a more diverse staff. I want to work out how to publish in different ways. I want to find ways to collaborate with uh, other media organisations to increase the reach of what we produce. Mostly, I just want to keep providing readers with the news and the information and the fun stuff that they want and that they value. I mean, that's why we're here, right? And we're here to stay. You have listened to many of the people that were involved in the launch of Guardian Australia, but you have not heard from anywhere near all of the people that were involved. It simply was not possible to include them all, but it really was the effort and work and blood, sweat and tears of many people, and we thank them all. This special 10th birthday podcast was produced by Laura Briley-Newton, Alison Chan, Lewis Isaacs and Camilla Hannon, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. If you want to read, listen, watch more of Guardian Australia's great reporting, head to our website, guardian.com. I'm Bridie Jabal. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.